0: But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. If you're listening and you are a patron, thank you so, so much. Um, and if you listening are not a patron, you can be a part of making this show by going to Patreon.com slash If you donate $5 a month, you get access to all kinds of poetry readings that are not on the regular podcast feed, but no matter how much you donate, even if it's a dollar, I'll read your name in the opening credits of the next show as a thank you. So again, if you would like to be a part of making this show, just go to patreon.com slash radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lebkowski, and the cover-up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kana Well, tonight, I'm going to be reading from one of the most famous stories in the world. Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. This book, um, it was published in 1878, and Tolstoy himself called it his first true novel. It's been translated into so many different languages, um, it's a really wonderfully complex story, um, and it's really a pleasure to read out loud. I think you're going to really enjoy falling asleep to it. So, without further ado, Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable close your eyes and let me read to you. Part One Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Everything was in confusion in the Oblonsky's house. The wife had discovered that the husband was carrying on an intrigue with a French girl who had been a governess in their family, and she had announced to her husband that she could not go on living in the same house with him. This position of affairs had now lasted three days and not only did the husband and wife themselves but all the members of their family and household were painfully conscious of it. Every person in the house felt that there was no sense in their living together and that the stray people brought together by chance in any inn had more in common with one another than they. The members of the family in the household of the Oblonskys. The wife did not leave her own room. The husband had not been at home for three days. The children ran wild all over the house. The English governess quarreled with the housekeeper and wrote to a friend asking her to look out for a new situation for her. The man cooked had walked off the day before, just at dinner time. The kitchen maid and the coachman had given warning. Three days after the quarrel, Prince Stepan Arkadyevich Oblonsky, Steva, as he was called in the fashionable world, woke up at his usual hour, that is, at eight o'clock in the morning, not in his wife's bedroom but on the leather-covered sofa in his study. He turned over his stout, well-cared-for person on the springy sofa as he would sink into a long sleep again. He vigorously embraced the pillow on the other side and buried his face in it. But all at once he jumped up, sat up on the sofa, And opened his eyes Yes, yes How was it now, he thought Going over his dream Now, how was it To be sure Alaban was giving a dinner at Darmstadt No, not Darmstadt But something American Yes, but then Darmstadt was in America Yes, but then Darmstadt was in America, yes, Alaban was giving a dinner on glass tables, and the tables say, il mio tesoro, not il mio tesoro though, but something better, and there were some sort of little decanters on the table, and they were women too, he remembered. Stepan in, eyes twinkled gaily, and he pondered with a smile. Yes, it was nice. Very nice. There was a great deal more that was delightful, only there's no putting it into words, or even expressing it in one's thoughts awake. And noticing a gleam of light peeping in beside one of the surge curtains, He cheerfully dropped his feet over the edge of the sofa and felt about with them for his slippers, a present on his last birthday, worked for him by his wife on gold-colored Morocco. And as he had done every day for the last nine years, he stretched out his hand without getting up towards the place where his dressing gown always hung in his bedroom. Thereupon he suddenly remembered that he was not sleeping in his wife's room, but in his study, and why? The smile vanished from his face. He knitted his brows. Ah 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 ooh, he muttered, recalling everything that had happened. And again every detail of his quarrel with his wife was present to his imagination, all the hopelessness of his position, and worst of all, his own fault. Yes, she won't forgive me, and she can't forgive me, and the most awful thing about it is that it's all my fault, all my fault, though I'm not to blame. That's the point of the whole situation, he reflected. Oh, 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 he kept repeating in despair as he remembered the acutely painful sensations caused him by this quarrel. Most unpleasant of all was the first minute when, coming, happy and good-humored from the theater with a huge pair in his hand from his wife, He had not found his wife in the drawing room. To his surprise, had not found her in the study either, and saw her at last in her bedroom with the unlucky letter that revealed everything in her hand. She, his dolly, forever fussing and worrying over household details and limited in her ideas as he considered, was sitting perfectly still with the letter in her hand looking at him with an expression of horror, despair, and indignation. What's this? This, she asked, pointing to the letter. And at this recollection, Stepan Hardikievich, as is so often the case, was not so much annoyed at the fact itself as at the way in which he had met his wife's words. There happened to him at that instant what does happen to people when they are unexpectedly caught in something very disgraceful. He did not succeed in adapting his face to the position in which he was placed towards his wife by the discovery of his fall. Instead of being her, denying, defending himself, begging forgiveness... Instead of remaining indifferent even, anything would have been better than what he did do. His face, utterly, involuntarily, reflex spinal action, reflected Stepan Ardikevich, who was fond of physiology. Utterly, involuntarily assumed its habitual, good-humored, and therefore idiotic smile. This idiotic smile, he could not forgive himself. Catching sight of that smile, Dolly shuddered as though a physical pain, broke out with her characteristic heat into a flood of cruel words, and rushed out of the room. Since then, she had refused to see her husband. It's that idiotic smile that's to blame for it all thought Stepan Arkadyevich. But what's to be done? What's to be done? He said to himself in despair and found no answer. Part 2 Stepan Arkadyevitch was a truthful man in his relations with himself. He was incapable of deceiving himself and persuading himself that he repented of his conduct. He could not at this date repent of the fact that he, a handsome, susceptible man of 34, was not in love with his wife, the mother of his children, and only a year younger than himself. All he repented of was that he had not succeeded better in hiding it from his wife but he felt all the difficulty of his position and sorry for his wife, his children, and himself. Possibly he might have managed to conceal his sins better from his wife if he had anticipated that the knowledge of them would have had such an effect on her. He had never clearly thought out the subject but he had vaguely conceived that his wife must long ago have suspected him of being unfaithful to her, and shut her eyes to the fact. He had even supposed that she, a worn-out woman no longer young or good-looking, and in no way remarkable or interesting, merely a good mother, off from a sense of fairness to take an indulgent view. It had turned out quite the other way. Oh, it's awful. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Awful. Stefan Arkadyevich kept repeating to himself, and he could think of nothing to be done. And how well things were going up till now. How well we got on. She was contented and happy in her children. I never interfered with her, in anything. I let her manage the children and the house just as she liked. It's true, it's bad, her having been a governess in our house. That's bad. There's something common, vulgar, in flirting with one's governess. But what a governess! He vividly recalled the roguish black eyes of Mademoiselle Roland and her smile. But after all, while she was in the house, I kept myself in hand. And the worst of it all is that she's already, it seems, as if ill luck would have it so. Oh, oh, but what? What is to be done? There was no solution. But that universal solution, which life gives to all questions, even the most complex and insoluble. That answer is, one must live in the needs of the day. That is, forget oneself. To forget himself in sleep was impossible now, at least till nighttime. He could not go back now to the music sung by the decanter women. So he must forget himself in the dream of daily life. Then we shall see, Stepan Arkadyevich said to himself. And getting up, he put on a gray dressing gown lined with blue silk, tied with tassels and a knot, and drawing a deep breath of air into his broad, bare chest, he walked to the window with his usual confident step, turning out his feet. That carried his full frame so easily He pulled up the blind And rang the bell loudly It was at once answered by the appearance of an old friend His valet, Matve Carrying his clothes, his boots and a telegram Matve was followed by the barber With all the necessities for shaving are there any papers from the office? asked Stepan Arkadyevich, taking the telegram and seating himself at the looking-glass. On the table, replied Matvey, glancing with inquiring sympathy at his master. And after a short pause, he added with a sly smile, They have sent from the carriage robbers. Stepan Arkevich made no reply. He merely glanced at Matve in the looking glass. In the glance in which their eyes met in the looking glass, it was clear that they understood one another. Stepan Arkevich's eyes asked, Why do you tell me that? Don't you know? Mave put his hands in his jacket pockets, thrust out one leg, and gazed silently, good-humoredly, with a faint smile at his master. I told them to come on Sunday, until then not to trouble you or themselves for nothing, he said. He had obviously prepared the sentence beforehand. Stepan Arkadyevich saw Matvey, wanted to make a joke and attract attention to himself. Tearing open the telegram, he read it through, guessing at the words, misspelt as they always are in telegrams, and his face brightened. Matvey, my sister, Anna Arkadyevna, will be here tomorrow, he said, checking for a minute the sleek, plump hand of the barber, cutting a pink path through his long, curly whiskers. Thank God, said Matvey, showing by his response that he, like his master, realized the significance of this arrival. That is, that Anna Arkadyevna, the sister he was so fond of, might bring about a reconciliation between husband and wife. Alone or with her husband? inquired Matvey. Stefan Arkadyevich could not answer, as the barber was at work on his upper lip and he raised one finger. Matvey nodded at the looking glass. Alone? Is the room to be got ready upstairs? informed Darya Alexandrovna. Where she orders Darya Alexandrovna Matvey repeated As though in doubt Yes, inform her Here, take the telegram Give it to her And then do what she tells you You want to try it on Mave understood But he only said Yes, sir Step in, Arkadyevich was already washed and combed and ready to be dressed. When Matvey, stepping deliberately in his creaky boots, came back into the room with the telegram in his hand, the barber had gone. Darya Alexandrovna told me to inform you that she is going away. Let him do, that is you, as he likes, he said, laughing only with his eyes. And putting his hands in his pockets, he watched his master with his head on one side. Stefan Arkadyevich was silent a minute. Then a good humored and rather pitiful smile showed itself on his handsome face. Hey, Matvey, he said, shaking his head. It's all right, sir. She will come around, said Matvey. Come round. Yes, sir. Do you think so? Who's there? Asked Stepan Arkadyevich, hearing the rustle of a woman's dress at the door. It's I, said a firm, pleasant woman's voice, and the stern, pockmarked face of Matrona Velimanovna, the nurse, was thrust into the doorway. Well, what is it, Matrona?" queried Stepan Arkadyevich, going up to her at the door. Although Stepan Arkadyevich was completely in the wrong as regards his wife, and was conscious of this himself, almost everyone in the house, even the nurse, Darya's chief ally, was on his side. Well, what now? He asked disconsolately. Go to her, sir. Own your fault again. Maybe God will aid you. She is suffering, so it's sad to see her. And besides, everything in the house is topsy-turvy. You must have pity, sir, on the children. Beg her forgiveness, sir. There's no help for it. One must take the consequences. But she won't see me. You do your part. God is merciful. Pray to God, sir. Pray to God. Come, that'll do. You can go, said Stepan Arkadyevitch, blushing suddenly. Well now, do dress me he turned to Matvey, and threw off his dressing gown decisively. Matvey was already holding up the shirt like a horse's collar, and blowing off some invisible speck, he slipped it with obvious pleasure over the well-groomed body of his master. Part 3 When he was dressed, Stepan Arkadyevich sprinkled some scent on himself, pulled down his shirt cuffs, distributed into his pockets his cigarettes, pocketbook, matches, and watch with its double chain and seals, and shaking out his handkerchief, feeling himself clean, fragrant, healthy, and physically at ease in spite of his happiness. He walked with a slight swing on each leg into the dining room where coffee was already waiting for him and besides the coffee letters and papers from the office. He read the letters. One was very unpleasant from a merchant who was buying a forest on his wife's property. To sell this forest was absolutely essential but at present until he was reconciled with his wife, the subject could not be discussed. The most unpleasant thing of all was that his pecuniary interest should in this way enter into the question of his reconciliation with his wife, and the idea that he might be led on by his interest that he might seek a reconciliation with his wife on account of the sale of the forest, That idea hurt him. When he had finished his letters, Stepan Arkadyevich moved the office papers close to him, rapidly looked through two pieces of business, made a few notes with a big pencil, and pushing away the papers, turned to his coffee. As he sipped his coffee, he opened a still, damp morning paper, and began reading it. Stepan Arkadyevich took in and read a liberal paper, not an extreme one, but one advocating the views held by the majority. And in spite of the fact that science, art, and politics had no special interest for him, he firmly held those views on all these subjects which were held by the majority and by his paper. And he only changed them when the majority changed them, or, more strictly speaking, he did not change them, but they imperceptibly changed of themselves within him. Stepan Arkadyevich had not chosen his political opinions or his views. These political opinions and views had come to him of themselves just as he did not choose the shapes of his hat and coat, but simply took those that were being worn. And for him, living in a certain society, owing to the need, ordinarily developed at years of discretion for some degree of mental activity. To have views was just as indispensable as to have a hat. If there was a reason for this preferring liberal to conservative views, which were held also by many of his circle, it arose not from his considering liberalism more rational, but from its being in closer accordance with his manner of life. The Liberal Party said that in Russia everything is wrong, and certainly Stepan Arkadyevich had many debts and was decidedly short of money. The Liberal Party said that marriage is an institution quite out of date and that it needs reconstruction and family life certainly afforded Stepan Arkadyevich little gratification and forced him into lie and hypocrisy which was so repulsive to his nature. The Liberal Party said, or rather allowed it to be understood that religion is only a curve to keep in check the barbarous classes of the people. And Stepan Arkadyevich could not get through even a short service without his legs aching from standing up and could never make out what was the object of all the terrible and high-flown language about another world when life might be so very amusing in this world. And with all this, Stepan Arkadyevich, who liked to joke, was fond of puzzling a plain man by saying that, if he prided himself on his origin, he ought not to stop at Rurik and disown the first founder of his family, the monkey. And so, liberalism had become a habit of Stepan Arkadyevitch's, and he liked his newspaper, as he did his cigar for dinner, for the slight fog it diffused in his brain. He read the leading article, in which it was maintained that it was quite senseless in our day to raise an outcry that radicalism was threatening to swallow up all conservative elements and that government ought to take measures to crush the revolutionary hydra. That, on the contrary, in our opinion. The danger lies not in the fantastic revolutionary hydra, but in the obstinacy of traditionalism-clogging progress, etc., etc. He read another article, too, a financial one, which alluded to Bentham and Mill, and dropped some innuendos reflecting on the ministry. With his characteristic quick-wittedness, he caught the drift of each innuendo, divined whence it came, at whom and on what ground it was aimed, and that afforded him, as it always did, a certain satisfaction. But today, that satisfaction was embittered by Metrona Filimonovna's advice and the unsatisfactory state of the household. He read, too, that Count Beist was rumored to have left for Weissbaden and that one need have no more gray hair and of the sale of a light carriage and of a young person seeking a situation. But these items of information did not give him the usual, quiet, ironical gratification. Having finished the paper, a second cup of coffee and a roll and butter he got up shaking the crumbs of the roll off his waistcoat and squaring his broad chest he smiled joyously not because there was anything particularly agreeable in his mind the joyous smile was evoked by a good digestion but this joyous smile they at once recalled everything to him, and he grew thoughtful. Two childish voices, Stepan Arkadyevich, recognized the voices of Grisha, his youngest boy, and Tanya, his eldest girl, were heard outside the door. They were carrying something, and dropped it. I told you not to sit passengers on the roof said the little girl in English There, pick them up Everything's in confusion thought Stepan Arkadyevich There are children running about by themselves And going to the door he called them They threw down the box that represented a train and came in to their father the little girl, her father's favorite, ran up boldly, embraced him, and hung laughingly on his neck, enjoying as she always did the smell of scent that came from his whiskers. At last the little girl kissed his face, which was flushed from his stooping posture, and beaming with tenderness, loosed her hands, and was about to run away again, but her father held her back. How is Mama? he asked, passing his hand over his daughter's smooth, soft little neck. Good morning, he said, smiling to the boy who had come up to greet him. He was conscious that he loved the boy less and always tried to be fair, but the boy felt that and did not respond with a smile to his father's chilly smile. Mama? She is up, answered the girl. Stepan Arkadyevich sighed. That means that she's not slept again all night, he thought. Well, is she cheerful? The little girl knew that there was a quarrel between her father and mother, and that her mother could not be cheerful, and that her father must be aware of this, and that he was pretending when he asked about it so lightly and she blushed for her father he at once perceived it and blushed too I don't know she said she did not say we must do our lessons but she said we were going for a walk with Miss Hoole to grandmama's well Go, Tanya, my darling. Oh, wait a minute, though, he said, still holding her and stroking her soft little hand. He took off the mantelpiece where he had put it yesterday, a little box of sweets, and gave her two, picking out her favorites, a chocolate and a fondant. For Krishna, said the little girl, pointing to the chocolate. Yes, yes. And still stroking her little shoulder, he kissed her on the roots of her hair and neck and let her go. The carriage is ready, said Matvey. but there's someone to see you with a petition. Been here long, asked Stepan Arkadyevitch. Half an hour. How many times have I told you to tell me at once? One must let you drink your coffee in peace, at least, said Matvey, in the affectionately gruff tone with which it was impossible to be angry. Well, show the person up at once, said Oblonsky, frowning with vexation. The petitioner, The widow of a staff, Captain Kalinin came with a request impossible and unreasonable. But Stepan Arkadyevich, as he generally did, made her sit down, heard her to the end attentively without interrupting her, and gave her detailed advice as to how and whom to apply, and even wrote her, in his large, sprawling, good and legible hand, a confident, and fluent little note to a personage who might be of use to her. Having got rid of the staff, Captain's widow, Stepan Arkadyevitch took his hat and stopped to recollect whether he had forgotten anything. It appeared that he had forgotten nothing except what he had wanted to forget, his wife. Ah, yes, he bowed his head, and his handsome face assumed a harassed expression. To go, or not to go, he said to himself, and an inner voice told him he must not go, that nothing could come of it but falsity, that to amend to set right their relations was impossible, because it was impossible to make her attractive again. Been able to inspire love or to make him an old man, not susceptible to love. Except to see and lie, nothing could come of it now, and to see and lie were opposed to his nature. It must be some time though. It can't go on like this, he said, trying to give himself courage. He squared his chest, took out a cigarette, took two whiffs at it, flung it into a mother-of-pearl ashtray, and with rapid step, walked through the drawing room and opened the other door into his wife's bedroom.